Daniel chapter 5, and uh, once you find it, go ahead and uh, stand for, for uh, respect, out of respect for God's word, and uh, notice Noah was one of the first to stand tonight. Why, why do you have so much energy? Why do you look so happy tonight? Oh, Angie, why do you look so happy tonight? Yeah, something's going on there. It's like, just keep that out of the light, because I can't, you know, I don't want it to blind me while I'm... Well, congratulations to Noah and Angie. Uh, for getting engaged and uh, look forward to seeing what God does with that couple and uh, and uh, also have a call in Crystal it's so funny on Sunday mornings he stands and asks us to pray for the wedding coming up and I always say okay how many days and he knows exactly right how many 48 okay I think it was 50 something this morning so either he miscounted or time is flying, like Jacob, you know, working seven years seemed but a few days, you know. So <laughs> we'll have to talk about that, your math. So anyway, we're excited. I like weddings and excited to see what God does uh, with these couples getting together here. And so grateful for it. Daniel chapter 5 is where we're going to be. We're just going to read the first few verses here and uh, the whole text is a story many of us recognize it's the you know the great hand appearing and um, the writing on the wall and all of that and we won't t cover that tonight because I there's a principle in the first few verses I want to get I couldn't get past and uh, we'll cover those and then we'll get to the rest of it next time but it says in verse 1 Daniel 5 1 uh, Belshazzar the king so by the way I'll stop there because I'm a preacher and I do that so uh, Nebuchadnezzar is off the scene. Uh, he has, he's died and passed the kingdom on um, to, and we'll explain what's happened here. But Belshazzar is the king uh, overseeing what's happening in the moment. Um, and Belshazzar is likely his grandson, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. It says, Belshazzar, the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes his wives and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. And you say, well, that sounds about right for a pagan king. That's the kind of thing you would expect a pagan king to do. But if you only knew what was happening right outside the walls of Babylon, it's amazing that he would stop and throw a party. And we're going to look at that, this thought tonight of, of we ought to value what we've been given because we don't know how long we'll have it and, and, and God could take it away. And I want to look at a principle tonight that I think will be a help and really tonight the focus in a lot of ways will be on our young people. And tonight we've got, you know, all these things set up out here. We've got the fellowship, we've got the chili and, and we've got the baked goods. It's for the young people and I want to apply some things 
to your lives specifically that I think will be a help to you as we go through this text. So let's ask God to bless us, then we'll get into the, the message tonight. Lord, we need you, and I pray that you'd help us tonight. Meet with us, bless the reading of your word, and I pray that you'd be pleased with everything that is said behind this pulpit tonight. We're thankful for the, the guests we have tonight. We're thankful for family members. We're thankful for uh, the, the young people and the hard work they've put into this. And yet we don't want to miss uh, what you brought us together for. You did bring us together to to open your word and to see what it is that you have for us. And I pray tonight that you would speak to us and that you would use this message to make a difference in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. I read recently about people that accidentally threw away something valuable and it was pretty interesting. Um, I read how a man in Florida was seen digging through a dumpster, and only in Florida, by the way. If you're from Florida, I'm sorry. Um, Eric's about to go there for a few months. And, and only in Florida, you, there's a man digging through a dumpster after his wife accidentally threw away his prosthetic leg. That's a problem. I read about a veterinarian in Oklahoma City who took his wedding ring off to do surgery on, a, on an animal and someone accidentally threw his wedding ring away. That'd be terrible. How many of you, has that ever happened to anybody in here? Okay, only Molly. Oh, Molly, Vicky. Yeah, accidentally. I mean, not on purpose, right? You didn't throw away your wedding ring. Out of, okay. Um, I, I read about a man in Pennsylvania who always played the same lottery numbers. Now, I'm not condoning this. I'm just telling you, he always played the same lottery numbers. I don't even know how that works exactly, but every day he'd play the same lottery numbers. And one day, he actually won, but unfortunately, he was in the habit of not taking it seriously because he played the numbers every day. He threw his lottery tickets away and found out later that he had actually won $1.25 million dollars in the lottery, but threw all of his tickets away. It's a bummer. It's what he gets. <laughs> then I read about a nurse, and this one really kind of blows my mind. I mean, again, on the internet, must be true, I don't know. A nurse from Ohio accidentally threw away a kidney. That was supposed to be, James, you like that, huh? <laughs> She thought it was medical waste, but it was actually supposed to be used for a kidney transplant. Bummer, right? Listen, if you have something valuable, you want to hold on to it. You want to watch it closely. You don't want to let it go if it's, if it's valuable to you. And, and things that are valuable get thrown away sometimes. I remember one time I, I, there was a trash bag uh, among all this other stuff, and I thought it was trash. I threw it away. Little did I know it was a bunch of good clothes that my wife had set aside uh, for something, and I threw the whole bag away. We never found it again. You know, it's easy to, to let that happen, but it's, but it's actually, it, it's one thing if it's an accident, but it's another thing entirely if it's done on purpose. Can you imagine just throwing away something valuable on purpose? Well, I, I look around at our culture, and in many ways, now we're taking a step back, I, I see a younger generation that tends to just throw out what's, what gets handed to them because they resent the previous generation. 
You know, there's a younger generation that, you know, they've received things and rather than embrace them, they, they toss them out. And, and I'm not just talking about tearing down civil war general statues and those things, although that's part of the mindset. I mean that they're distancing themselves from the morals and the values and the worldviews that have been passed down to them because they resent anything that comes from the older generation. And that's happening in our culture um, in, a, in a great way, especially the last few years. And, and that leads me into this thought of holding on to what should be valuable to you. Uh, by the time we get to Daniel 5, Nebuchadnezzar is off the scene. At this point in history, um, Belshazzar's father, whose name is Nabonidus, he's at, he is the king of, Bab- of the Babylonian Empire and Belshazzar is likely the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. His dad, again, once again, is Nabonidus. And we can't know for sure exactly the connection, but it's likely that Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. We know that Nebuchadnezzar died nearly 30 years before this account. Um, and now Nabonidus sits on the throne and he's reigning alongside his son, Belshazzar. And some critics uh, looked at Daniel 5 and discounted Daniel because they said, well, it's not reliable. It says Belshazzar's the king. But history tells us that Nabonidus was the king at this time. And, and so that caused some confusion or debate for a while. But a few decades ago, and this is how it always works, in that archaeology always proves the Bible. Now, the Bible's never been proven wrong by archaeology or history, but a few decades ago in a place called Basra, there was an inscription that talked about Nabonidus going to fight the Persians in a place called Sippar. So, so Nabonidus had left Babylon to go fight against the Medo-Persians who were the rising power of the day, and that gives some insight into what's happening here. Nabonidus is the reigning king. He reigns alongside his son Belshazzar, but at this moment, he has gone to fight. He has left Babylon, and he's gone to fight the, the Persians somewhere else, and he has left his son Belshazzar in charge of Babylon while he goes to fight the Persians. And it's while he's away fighting the Persians, that, or somewhere else, that, that the Persians, though, the Persian army, comes to Babylon and surrounds Babylon and prepares to overthrow the city. That's literally, that's the context of what's happening in Daniel 5. The Persians are, are surrounding the city. They're ready to take Babylon down, overthrow it, and conquer it. And let me just ask you, if you're about to be conquered by the world's most powerful army, what would you do? Would you pray? Yes. Would you fast? Yes. Would you come up with a strategy? I would hope so. Would you evacuate the women and children? Sure. And myself as well, you know. Would you maybe send a message to your dad? And say, hey, we're in trouble here. We need some reinforcements. Or maybe you would do this. Maybe you would throw a raging party. Yeah, that sounds silly. Of all the things that Belshazzar could have done, he's so arrogant about the strength of his city that he throws a Babylonian bash. I mean, according to history, Babylon fell on October 12, 539 B.C., and, their, and commentators believe this bash took place the day before. 
The Persian army has surrounded the city. And Belshazzar invites 1,000 lords and wives and concubines and princes. And he says, we're going to have a party. There are likely thousands of people at this party. Some believe it was the time of a Babylonian festival. So it's just the time to have a party. But wouldn't wisdom tell you, if you're surrounded by the Medo-Persian army, you're not going to throw a party. You're going to focus on the enemy at the gates. Well, there's, here's Belshazzar, very confident in the walls of Babylon. He throws a party because he thinks that Babylon is impenetrable. And we talked on Wednesday about some of the uh, fortifications of the city. It was surrounded by uh, a broad moat, so it was protected by water all around it. And beyond the moat was, was an elaborate system of double walls. And so just to give you some numbers, the innermost wall was 21 feet thick with defensive towers every 60 feet. Uh, the outer wall was 11 feet thick, complete with more watchtowers. And beyond that system of walls was another set of walls. The inner, set of, the inner wall on that second set was 23 feet thick and the outer wall was 25 feet thick and most people believe these walls were likely 40 feet high. I mean, not only that, but they have resources inside the city. The Euphrates River actually ran right through the middle of Babylon. So they've got plenty of water. Other sources tell us that they had stockpiled enough food to, have, uh, to last them for 20 years. So here's Belshazzar, and he doesn't feel threatened because he has confidence in man-made strength. And he wants everyone at the party, all of the influencers, all of the rich, all of the powerful, he wants them to have the same confidence that he has. So he calls them to the, to the temple or his palace, and he has a Babylonian bash, and it's like he's flexing in the face of Persia, and he's saying, we're not afraid, we're going to have a party. We're going to show you how confident we are in our man-made fortifications. The kingdom is in danger and they're carefree. They're getting drunk. They're forgetting about their problems. They're living it up right before they die. And the temple vessels then get called in. And if you think that Belshazzar was being real responsible before, he ramps up the irreverence here. In verse 2, uh, I'll read verse 1, we'll start there again. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the gold, golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God which was at Jerusalem and the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines drank in them. He has his servants go get the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. They're not cheap plastic throwaway cups. These are gold and silver cups that were literally used inside the temple in Jerusalem as a part of worshiping Jehovah. They'd been on display in the Babylonian temple as trophies of their triumph over Judah, which at one point was a world power themselves. And, and at this point, it seems like those cups that they had taken out of Jerusalem just sat on a shelf somewhere as a trophy, letting people know, here's how strong we are. Here's how, here's how mighty we are. And, and they, there would have been a general, as far as my understanding, 
there would have been a general superstition against using those vessels that, that were used for you know, the, the worship of another god. They would have thought, we're not going to tamper with those. Those are instruments of worship. Um, they're very superstitious. They probably think something might happen to them if they use those vessels. And, but Belshazzar is drunk. He's lost all filters. He simply wants to point out to all the people in his feast, he wants to say, look at what we've done. Look how powerful we are. We have cups and vessels from one of the most powerful countries that used to be one of the most powerful countries on earth. We're going to drink out of them to remind you just how confident we are in our strength right here in Babylon. We have nothing to fear. And by the way, no Christian ought to be involved in drinking alcohol. And if nothing else, it puts you in a position in which you're no longer making the decisions. And that's a bad place to be because the Bible says, um, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And the idea there is that you don't ever want to put yourself in a position where something else is making the decisions for you instead of the Holy Spirit. And they're drinking, they're drunk, his judgment is clouded. And, and to amp up the irreverence, look what he does in verse 4. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. He actually toasts the false gods using the temple worship vessels that were meant for Jehovah. He's worshiping, if you will, worshiping false gods using them. We find out later that his actions were conducted in direct defiance to the God of heaven. It, when Daniel interprets um, the writing later on, look down at verse 22. This is Daniel talking to Belshazzar. He says, and thou his son Belshazzar has not humbled thine heart. Thou, thou, though thou knewest all this, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives, and thy concubines have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know, and the God in whose hand the, thy breath is, and whose, all are, whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified? Then was the part of the hand sent from him and this writing was written. So we'll cover that more next week. But we find out here that this is not an, an act of, of ignorance on Belshazzar's part. He knows what he's doing. He's being defiant. He's shaking his face or his finger and his fist in the face of God and saying, I'm, I'm stronger than you. I can do whatever I want. I'm going to defile these temple vessels and do what I want and nobody can stop me. Well, history tells us that while they're partying, in the middle of their party, the Persians are attacking. And they start not by, by swords and, and not by overthrowing in a fight. No, they divert the Euphrates River. While they're distracted, they divert the Euphrates River, they cause it to get low, and then they march right into the city and take the city, and literally, from my understanding of history, they took it without a fight. See, we're going to see what happens to Belshazzar and the Babylonian bash in our next message, but I want to stop here and just consider some things. See, Nabonidus is Belshazzar's father. He's out fighting. Think about this. 
He's literally out fighting the Persians. He's trying to save his empire. He leaves his son in charge who throws a bash with all the leaders of the city. And as a result, Babylon is lost. Nabonidus then is captured upon his return to the city. And I want to make some applications with this tonight because there are some lessons I think that are good for us. And I heard my pastor, Pastor Hardy, preach some of this years ago. So I don't know that I remember everything, but the lessons always stuck with me. So I'll give credit where credit is due. I want to try to convey some of that to you. And I want to focus on the young people tonight. See, this story is about a son who was careless with the things that his father left him. And you know the saying, while the cat's away, the mice will play. And the saying around homes everywhere is, when dad and mom are away, the kids will play. You know, don't, and don't act innocent, kids. We all know, we were all were kids once, and there are times where we do things that we shouldn't do when our parents aren't home. That's not the way we should operate, but sometimes that happens. And, and it's sad because Belshazzar's dad left him with a responsibility, and he threw it away. If Belshazzar had been a good son, uh, he would have been, had respected what his dad left him. He would have done what his dad had told him. And, and, and I use the example of what's happening in our culture at the beginning of this, but it's happening in Christian homes as well. See, kids, children raised in Christian homes, they're raised a certain way. But when mom and dad no longer have direct um, oversight, they kind of immediately begin to cast off what they were given and start to do their own thing. And it's not like they've really given thought to what they're going to. They just know what, they, what they're leaving. And there's this air of, of flippancy involved and, and sons and daughters, they don't really value at times what their parents valued. And I've seen it and you've seen it. We know it happens in Christian homes. And, and yet we have a lot of young families here with children. And I don't want it to happen to you. I don't want to see, see, see you at some point with your children kind of casting off what you've tried to teach them. Well, here's Belshazzar and he wants to have a good time. He wants to boost morale, and yet there's so much at stake that he doesn't even see it. He should have been galvanizing the troops. He should have been leading them to protect what was valuable. He didn't respect what he got from his dad, and he ended up losing it all. And the truth is that any of us who have grown up in a Christian home, we could have walked away from the things that our parents gave us. I mean, I think about the things that I learned from my dad, and, and I learned from my dad how to walk with the Lord. And I'm thankful that I, I know he walked with God and, and my mom too. And I watched them do that. And I could have tossed that aside as soon as I got old enough. And as soon as I was out of the house, I could have said, well, I'm just doing that because I'm in the house. But no, I saw what it did for my parents and I saw the strength they had. And I, and I saw the impact they, they had and I know what they were doing behind the scenes. And that's why I continue to embrace it. Because I'm not just going to cast it off and, and trade it for something inferior. I think about my, my dad, uh, just the, the example he was in loving your wife and, and leading your family. I, I have a great dad. I'm thankful for him. He's not perfect, but he did his best to be what he was supposed to be for our family. And can you imagine then me growing up and just throwing that out and being loose with my marriage or neglectful with my kids just because I want to do something else? No, I feel, I feel a strong respect and loyalty to what my dad taught me in those areas. 
I, I think about prioritizing a local church. When my family, when, when I was about 10 years old, we lived in Abilene, Texas, where all of our family lived. I mean, both sides of the family, all, my grandparents, all my aunts and uncles, and my parents, by faith, left a, a solid church there and went to a dying church in Evanston, Wyoming, because they always had, had a pioneer spirit. They wanted to go somewhere where there wasn't a, a lot of help and didn't seem like there was a lot of hope. And they, want, they knew there was a church there that needed uh, some love and attention. And they left everything, their family behind. We moved to Wyoming not knowing anybody. And our first Sunday there were just a few people there that first Sunday. And uh, they were months behind on all their bills. And, you know, into the world, the world might say, why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense in a, logic, in a logical way. Um, but uh, my dad did that because uh, he felt called to a minister to, to a local church. He loved that church. He loved those people. And you may not see it as important, but Jesus loved that church too. He loved it enough to die for it. And my dad caught that heart. And he went and gave everything to that. And the blood and sweat and tears that he poured into that church as God turned it into a strong church. It's still a strong church today and I'm thankful for it. Can you imagine all the blood and sweat and tears that my dad poured into that and me growing up and knowing he, the, the, the sacrifice that he made to pour into a local church like that. Me growing up and saying, well, I don't really care about church. I'm just going to do my thing. And many of you have similar testimonies. Your dads may not be pastors, but you saw your dads pour themselves into a local church and give themselves to a, to a place that Jesus Christ loved enough to die for. I'm not going to walk away from that just because the world says, well, why would you prioritize something like that? I prioritize it not because my dad prioritized it, but because God led him to prioritize it through the reading of Scripture. And I'm not just going to toss that away for something else that comes along. I saw in my dad a commitment to God's word. My dad loves this book and he taught me to love it. And I can't imagine just tossing it aside or trading it out for something inferior just because I want something different or just because other people say, well, this is something, you know, this is something better and this is something more accurate. No, until I find something better, I'm sticking with the King James Bible and I'm thankful for it. You know, we're not just going to toss it aside just because it's not cool anymore. Uh, he, he gave me a love for people. My, my parents both, they poured themselves into those people in Evanston, Wyoming at that little church. And they loved people. They reached people. And most of our church in Wyoming was made up of people that my dad had met because he drove a bus at the local uh, school district. And most of the people that were in our church, my dad had met and won to the Lord, then won their families, then they came and got baptized and became a solid contributing members of that little Baptist church in Evanston, Wyoming. 85% Mormon, most of them had come out of the Mormon church and yet my dad just went and was faithful and he did that year after year driving a bus and, and it became his outreach. Listen, I can't imagine all that my parents have passed down to me just tossing it aside because I want something different. I can't imagine just being selfish and throwing it away. And I, was, I just want to say to our young people and to all of us here today, don't throw it away, build on it. Embrace it and, and, and assume that God has his hand in it. It came from people that you love and people that you trust. And, and maybe your parents weren't, you don't have that from your parents, uh, but you're getting that at Eastside Baptist Church. 
You know, we're not a first-generation church now. We're a few generations down, and yet what they started with, we still have it. I don't want to throw that away. And, and the, to the next generation tonight, rather than assume that what you got is flawed, and you say, well, my, parent, my, my friends don't do it, and it's not cool anymore. No, take and build on it rather than toss it aside. The people that love you the most have left you with some important things. Don't just throw it out with the trash. I view my responsibility to what my parents gave me as something that I want to build on, that I want to pass on to my children. And I can't, I can't make promises about my kids. I can't make them follow in my footsteps. But I can do what I do in such a way that if they toss it aside, if they let go of it, it's only because they find something better or something more biblical. See, not just because they don't like what they had. See, I'm not, I don't tell them, hey, you have to do everything the way that we've done it. But what I do say, but, but you ought to consider holding on to what you get unless you find something clearly better. And the truth is, I doubt they will. See, don't abandon what you get from the generation before you just because it's out of style. Or it's not popular. Or, or maybe it's more accepted in some ways. Don't trade what you've been given until you're convinced there's a superior option. So young people tonight, what, what are you going to do with what your parents have given you? What are you going to do with, with what you've received? Belshazzar, he took what his father gave him and he neglected it. He threw it away to have a party. I mean, they literally poured alcohol into holy vessels. And those vessels not only represented God, but they represented the Babylonian lives. You imagine there were some Babylonians who died to retrieve those vessels. Uh, we're not on Babylonian side, but those vessels cost them something to get. And so they make this toast and God sees the wickedness and he says, that's enough. And then a giant hand appears and writes on the wall and tells them, essentially, they're about to experience God's wrath and judgment. And Belshazzar, listen, Belshazzar dies that night. Doesn't last long. Now, before we, we, we start to wrap this up tonight, I want to give you a disclaimer What's the disclaimer? Well, this is a wicked king. I mean, you think about it. Of course, of course he's, he doesn't value what he's received. Of course he doesn't care about the vessels. Of course he doesn't care about his city. But, but I want you to think about this. Those vessels were in Babylon because God's people had done the same thing years before. See, the problem was not Babylon's. The problem was God's people. And at one point, years before this, the glory of God had filled the temple in Jerusalem in 2 Chronicles 5. When Solomon built the temple, the glory had filled the temple and the priests couldn't even stand to minister because the glory was so thick. But then uh, the kingdom split. Jeroboam took 10 tribes up north and they became Israel. Judah and Benjamin stayed down south and that's where Jerusalem was. But the northern kingdoms, they immediately changed the worship. And they said, no, you don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. That's too far. We're going to set up high places in your little community so you don't have to walk all the way to Jerusalem. You can have temples near you. So they set up these temples. They set up golden calves. And it was all in direct violation of God's word. 
Not only that, Jeroboam then put people in charge who were not qualified to be priests. They weren't qualified to lead in the spiritual ways. And even then in Judah, so that was Israel, the northern kingdom, but even in Judah, the southern kingdom, they started building high places. Uh, The temple, Solomon himself built high place after high place and let them worship where they wanted. And the temple, which should have been the focal point of their worship, it became optional. It became not a big deal. And, and there's so much history. But uh, So turn to Second Chronicles chapter 36. And, and I don't know that we're going to be back in Daniel 5, but Second Chronicles chapter 36. I just want to read a few verses to you out of this so that you could see what happened. So there's so much history. We could go through so much. But suffice it to say that eventually Ahaz, the king of Judah, gave away the temple vessels. He gave them away as gifts to other kings in 2 Kings. And then Manasseh made idols. He put idols in the temple. I mean, it was just a disaster. But look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Um, Look at verse 14. says, and afterward they made ready for themselves. I'm sorry, that's wrong chapter. Uh, 36, 14. Moreover, all the chief of the priests, so this is Zedekiah's reign. All the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abomination of the heathen. 36, 14. And polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending. These are prophets because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Uh, By the way, uh, if you ever read the Old Testament or talk to somebody about the Old Testament and you hear somebody say God doesn't have any mercy, over and over God has mercy. He gives his children chance after chance to repent because he had compassion on his people and they refused. Verse 17, therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and and had no compassion. And by the way, when they submitted, if they would have submitted to God, they would have found compassion from God. But by not submitting to God, they find themselves under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar who has no compassion for them. He had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God and break down the wall of Jerusalem and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths for as long as she lay desolate she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. For 70 years God judged the land because of their disobedience. Listen, it was Judah's fault that the vessels were in Babylon in the first place. Because the people had turned from what they received from their parents. 
I mean, the children of Israel turned from what they got and what they knew was right. And because they turned from what they, what they had received, God judges them and he allows the vessels to be carried away. So it, then Belshazzar ends up defiling those vessels. But listen, those vessels should have never been in Babylon in the first place. If God's people had protected and valued what they had, there would never have been an issue. So here's the question. Whose fault is it really that Belshazzar defiled the temples? Well, it's the fault of God's people. Those vessels shouldn't have been there. If they had valued what they received, they would still be happily worshiping in Jerusalem under God's protective hand. Can you imagine, I know this is a hard question to think about, but can you imagine our building being used for something else someday? I mean, what if in 20 years... This is a dance hall. What if in 20 years this is a bar? What if in 20 years this, is, this building is just some other building used for the community? It's no big deal. Nobody even remembers. Listen, you say, that couldn't happen here. It's happened before. There are plenty of buildings that used to be churches and now they're used for something inferior. And it could happen. And if we choose not to value what we've been given, it could happen here. And I can't imagine, I, I got something in the mail from Pastor Spencer this week, and I don't talk to him nearly enough as I should. He's busy and I'm busy, but I can't imagine looking Pastor Spencer in the face and saying, I'm sorry, I lost sight of what we were, what we are. And the enemy got a foothold. Eastside's a bar now. That's a serious thing to me. It should be a serious thing to you as well. And here are the questions we need to answer then. What doctrines will you be willing to let go of so we can be more relevant in our community? And who among us, young people, who among us are going to be the ones that push for changes so that we can fit the modern church mold? And what young people are going to buck against the music because it's not stylish enough and it's not, you know, really popular and people don't know it in the hymns. I don't know. No, who's going to buck against the music because it's not what you like? Or who's going to buck against what the standards that we, that we have because you want, we want our, our church to be perceived as cooler? And I'm not saying, by the way, I'm not saying that rules make us spiritual. They don't. But the standards, they help protect what we have. Amen. And some people say, well, don't preach standards. You know, you shouldn't preach standards. You know, just preach the text and let the text apply. But I have a tough time just stopping without giving some application because standards are protection. I mean, you say, well, okay, well, there's no, you're not allowed to preach standards. Nobody should just, that's extra biblical. Okay, I say, well, we're not allowed to have standards. So if a group comes in with enough money and they want to throw a party, if they say, we'll pay off your building, if you'll let us come in and, and throw a bash, a Babylonian bash in your building, we'll have it for three days. We can drink everything we want. We can do whatever we want. We'll pay your building off for you, though. They say, we'll do, we're going to do what we want on your platform. You know, to that, I think all of us would be on the same page. And we'd say, not a chance. You're not doing that in our church. We'll trust the Lord to pay off our building. Why? We'd all be against that. Why? Well, because this is God's house. 
And so for us to say that you shouldn't talk about standards, that's silly. Standards don't make us spiritual, but standards protect what we have. So I'm questioning, my question tonight is, then who's going to push the envelope? And, and who's going to try to fundamentally change who we are in certain areas that make us distinct? You know, the areas of dress or the areas of, of our worship or our requirements to lead and serve at Eastside. You know, who's going to just say, well, I don't know why we have to have all of that. I don't see why that's important. Well, I just want to know who's going to be the one to push that way. Who's going to undermine supporting the little things in the name of progress? Uh, who's going to say that, well, you know, we really need to move forward. We need to be more relevant. We need to be more like this. You know, I think about uh, something as simple as a sign. It's on every, uh, on every door leading into the sanctuary. And it says, no food or drink in the sanctuary. And we, most of us walk by that. And we don't really give it much thought anymore. But I do think most of us agree that that thought is right because this is a place of worship not a snack bar it's not a place to come in as a, there's a cup of water right here by the way don't i'm not talking about something like that i'm talking about coffee and and drinks and snacks and we do that in sunday school classes and and things like that but but i'm not saying that those signs make us spiritual but those signs are there for a reason i didn't put those signs there by the way the signs have been there since i got here no the signs are there for a reason not because we think the standards make us spiritual but because we want to be reminded and we want to remind others that this place is important to us and we want to protect it this is a place of worship. It's not a place to eat and, and snack and hang out. Now, and, and don't resent that. We don't resent that. No, we embrace that because it's a standard of protection. And listen, that goes in, in all kinds of areas at Eastside Baptist Church. And by the way, don't disrespect that one. You know, and I, I think, I mean, I see uh, it grow, it gets worse and worse sometimes. And people, you know, we have our, our food here tonight. Be careful not to just walk around with sugary drinks and, and food that can get in the carpet. We want to protect this. And it's not because we're Pharisees. It's because we have a lot of respect for the room this, rep, this, per, this represents. It, this represents our God and he's a holy God. There should be some distinction. So I'm asking you tonight... Young people especially, which of you are going to throw away what you've been given? I don't just mean at church, I mean on a personal level. You know, which, Carter, you know, he's a senior. And, I mean, it's hard to believe. Carter, what are you going to do with what you've been given once Chad and Lisa Viss are gone? Are, are, once you're out of the house, are you going to kind of let the things that they required of you, are you going to let those go? Are you going to be the one? I think of Ashton. He's a senior too. I mean, he, he had better be with a beard as good as that. <laughs> How are you going to treat what you've been given when Phil and Melissa Everett are no longer having direct oversight over your life? Because believe it or not, I know we're going to Bible college, you guys, but in a few months, your parents aren't watching you every day. And I know a lot of young people that get away from their parents and the first thing they do is they let the things go that they receive because they don't like them. Yep. Yep. And you, you don't realize what you're giving up in doing so. I think about Caitlin. She'll be at Bible College this fall and Rhiannon and Julia. 
and, and others, I mean, there are plenty of others, and not just this year, we've got others coming up. So what are you going to do when your parents no longer have oversight in your life? Are you going to value what you've received? Are you going to hold tightly to the things that your parents value? Or are you going to release them? And, and see, if we value this text, here's what we'll say. I'm not going to be Belshazzar. Unless, and here's the mentality we ought to have, that you ought to have. If you have godly parents who love the Lord, I'm not saying they're perfect because none of us are. But if you have godly parents who love the Lord and have explained things in a good way, then you ought to hold on to the things you've been given unless something more biblical or something obviously superior comes along. And don't just cast it aside, the first chance that you get or the first voice that comes along, even at Bible college, by the way, the first, first voice that comes along and makes you think that their way is better and that east side and your parents, that way is all dumb and backwards and you don't need that. No, unless it's more biblical or obviously superior, you hold on to what you've been given and God will bless you for that. Amen. Amen. Now you say, I'm going to value what I've been given. There's one more thought here tonight and we'll be done. I imagine Nabonidus, his father, he knew what was at stake. You know, Nabonidus is not in the, in the palace because he left with an army to go fight the Persians because he knew unless something happens, we're going down. He knew what was at stake. And I imagine Belshazzar is sitting in the palace like, my dad's so dumb. I can't believe he left. Look at the walls we have. I mean, look at the resources we have. Nobody's getting in here. Nobody's taking us over. And Belshazzar was questioning his dad. I'm just speculating. But I know, I know, I know sons, because I are one. Belshazzar sitting in his palace, and the reason I think he's questioning his dad is because he's not being nearly as diligent as his dad was being. And he's probably wondering, I don't know what the big deal is. There's no way the Persians are going to break down these walls. And he didn't understand what was really at stake. And his dad knew. And there are going to be times in the next few years of your life where you don't know what's at stake and you don't even know that you understand the rules. You don't understand the standards that you've been given. But can I just tell you this? Your parents are smarter than you. And they've lived, they've lived enough life to know that there's a reason for the protections they set up in your life. And, and, I, and I've preached a message like this before, but it's kind of like finding a fence in the forest. And young people these days walk through the forest, and when they find a fence, they're like, I don't see a reason for this, and they take it down, and they pay for it later. And I would just encourage you, young people tonight, would you determine I'm not taking down any fences that my parents put up in my life unless first I understand why it's there in the first place, but second, unless I find something more biblical and obviously superior than what, they've been, what they have given me. And, and it's time for our young people to decide, I'm going to value what I've been given. Because too many of your generation are throwing it all away right now. And, and I, I would love in 10 years, I don't know if this is you, I have dreams. I would love if in 10 years, Eastside Baptist Church isn't just full of the old timers, it's full of the ones that grew up there. Amen. Yeah. Amen. 
You know, the young people that came through the youth group and maybe God didn't lead them away to some other place and they say, I want to go back to Eastside because I value what I was given there. And maybe then we start to perpetuate ourselves in first, second, third generation young people staying here, plugging in and investing right back into the place that helped raise you. I just want to encourage you tonight, don't just trash what you've been given. Just because it may not be cool, we know we're not cool. Okay? We're not even trying. Brother Samuel really doesn't try. We know we're not cool, but you know what? Being cool is not, not what's cool to us. You know, we want to be biblical. And we want to protect what we've been given. And you are carrying that legacy. We want to ask that you consider tonight that you don't just kick down a fence unless first you find something more biblical or second, you find something obviously superior to what you've been given. Until then, you just embrace what you have and value what you've been given because I think God will bless us as a church and as families if we will hold tightly to the things that we've received from the previous generation. It's good, good help for us tonight, especially for our young people. I want to encourage you to make a decision tonight about stay, staying where you've been raised unless you find something that is clearly better. Just embrace what you've been taught and given uh, because uh, God blesses when we do that. Let's stand together.